Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, dear friends. Tonight you'll be led on a relaxing journey into the heart of the most enduring legends in the annals of literature. I'm going to say that, yes, the annals of literature. The tale of King Arthur. As we embark on this adventure, allow this story to wrap around you like a warm, comforting embrace. Let it lull you to a restful slumber. Before we begin our story, let's just take a moment, find a peaceful state. Settle into your bed. Find that perfect position, that one that comforts you. And if you will, close your eyes. And when you close your eyes, I'm going to give you a moment. When you're relaxed and you're settled in, just say the word yes. And let the weight of the day gently fade away leaving only tranquility in its wake. Breathe deeply, inhaling the rejuvenating air and exhaling your worries and concerns. Feel the soothing rhythm of your breath like an ebb and flow of the calming tide washing over you and inviting serenity into your being. Now, sit back and Relax and enjoy. My name is Eric Lapointe, and this sleep story centers on the tale of King Arthur, his origin, life, and contributions to the world of literature. His is a tale as old as time, going back to a time when magic and knights and enchanted forests were common to see. Let the language wash over you and lull you to sleep while you just follow the sound of my voice. Before we begin today's sleep story, Let's take a few minutes to settle in and relax. Get nice and cozy and comfortable in bed. And when you're ready, let your arms rest by your sides. Let your feet go ahead and fall apart naturally. Feel your bed supporting you. The soft pillow supporting and cradling your head and neck. Take a deep breath in and let it out. Feel the tension leaving your body, quieting the buzz of the day, just letting everything go. A wave of relaxation washes over you from the top of your head down to the tips of your toes. 
and your eyelids feel so heavy and it feels good to just keep them closed. Feeling so comfortable in your bed. Good. This is your time. We shall begin our history of King Arthur by giving those particulars of his life which appear to rest on historical evidence, and then proceed to record those legends concerning him which form the earliest portion of British literature. Arthur was a prince of the tribe of Britons called Ciliaries, whose country was South Wales. The son of Uther named Pendragon, a title given to an elective sovereign, mount over the many kings of Britain. He appears to have commenced his martial career about the year 500, and was raised to the Pendragon ship about ten years later. He is said to have gained twelve victories over the Saxons. The most important of them was that of Baden, by some supposed to be Bath, by others Berkshire. This was the last of his battles with the Saxons, and checked their progress so effectually that Arthur experienced no more annoyance from them and reigned in peace until the revolt of his nephew Modred, twenty years later which led to the final Battle of Camelot in Cornwall in 542. Modred was slain, and Arthur, mortally wounded, was conveyed by sea to Glastonbury, where he died and was buried. Tradition preserved the memory of the place of his internment within the abbey, as we are told by Geraldus Cambrensis, who was present when the grave was opened by command of Henry II about 1150, and saw the bones and sword of the monarch and a leaden cross led into his tombstone, with the inscription in rude Roman letters, Here lies buried the famous King Arthur in the island Avlonia. This story has been elegantly versified by Wharton. A popular traditional belief was long entertained among the Britons that Arthur was not dead, but had been carried off to be healed of his wounds in fairyland, and that he would reappear to avenge his countrymen and reinstate them in the sovereignty of Britain. It must not be concealed that the very existence of Arthur has been denied by some. Milton says of him, As to Arthur, more renowned in songs and romances than in true stories, who he was, and whether ever any such reigned in Britain, hath been doubted heretofore and may again with good reason. Modern critics, however, admit that there was a prince of this name, and find proof of it in the frequent mention of him in the writings of the Welsh bards. But the Arthur of Romance, according to Mr. Owen, a Welsh scholar and antiquarian, is a mythological person. Arthur, he says, is the great bear, as the name literally implies, Arctos, Arcturus. And perhaps this constellation, being so near the pole and visibly describing a circle in a small space, is the origin of the famous round table. Constans, king of Britain, had three sons, Moin, Ambrosius, otherwise called Uther, and Pendragon. Moin, soon after his accession to the crown, was vanquished by the Saxons, in consequence of the treachery of his seneschal, Vortigern, and growing unpopular through misfortune, he was killed by his subjects, and the traitor Vortigern chosen in his place. Vortigern was soon after defeated in a great battle by Uther and Pendragon, the surviving brothers of Moin, and Pendragon ascended the throne. This prince had great confidence in the wisdom of Merlin, 
and made him his chief advisor. About this time, a dreadful war arose between the Saxons and Britons. Merlin obliged the royal brothers to swear fidelity to each other, but predicted that one of them must fall in the first battle. The Saxons were routed, and Pendragon, being slain, was succeeded by Uther, who now assumed, in addition to his own name, the appellation of Pendragon. Merlin still continued a favorite counselor. At the request of Uther, he transported by magic art enormous stones from Ireland to form the sepulchre of Pendragon. These stones constitute the monument now called Stonehenge on Salisbury Plain. Merlin next proceeded to Carlisle to prepare the round table, at which he seated an assemblage of the great nobles of the country. The companions admitted to this high order were bound by oath to assist each other at the hazard of their own lives, to attempt singly the most perilous adventures, to lead, when necessary, a life of monastic solitude, to fly to arms at the first summons and never to retire from battle till they had defeated the enemy, unless night intervened and set the combatants. Soon after this institution, the king invited all his barons to the celebration of a great festival, which he proposed holding annually at Carlisle. As the knights had obtained the sovereign's permission to bring their ladies along with them, the beautiful Igern accompanied her husband, Gorlois, Duke of Tintadel, to one of these anniversaries. The king became deeply enamored of the duchess and disclosed his passion but Igern repelled his advances and revealed his solicitations to her husband. On hearing this, the duke instantly removed from court with Igern, and without taking leave of Uther. The king complained to his council of this want of duty, and they decided that the duke should be summoned to court and, if refractory, should be treated as a rebel. As he refused to obey the citation, the king carried war into the estates of his vassal, and besieged him in the strong castle of Tintetel. Merlin transformed the king into the likeness of Gorlois, and enabled him to have many stolen interviews with Igern. At length, the duke was killed in battle, and the king espoused Igern. From this union sprang Arthur, who succeeded his father Uther upon the throne. Arthur, only fifteen years old at his father's death, was elected king at a general meeting of the nobles. It was not done without opposition, for there were many ambitious competitors. But Bishop Bryce, a person of great sanctity, on Christmas Eve addressed the assembly and represented that it would well become them at that solemn season to put up their prayers for some token which should manifest the intentions of providence respecting their future sovereign. This was done, and with such success that the service was scarcely ended when a miraculous stone was discovered before the church door, and in the stone was firmly fixed a sword, with the following words engraved on its hilt. I am Excalibur, unto a king fair treasure. Bishop Bryce proposed a law, that whoever should be able to draw out the sword from the stone should be acknowledged as sovereign of the Britons and his proposal was decreed by general acclamation. The tributary kings of Uther and the most famous knights successfully put their strength to the proof, but the miraculous sword resisted all their efforts. It stood Candlemas, it stood till Easter, 
until Pentecost, when the best knights in the kingdom usually assembled for the annual tournament. Arthur, who was at this time serving in the capacity of squire to his foster brother, Sir Kay, attended his master to the lists. Sir Kay fought with great valor and success, but had the misfortune to break his sword and sent Arthur to his mother for a new one. Arthur hastened home, but did not find the lady. But having observed near the church a sword sticking in a stone, he galloped to the place, drew out the sword with great ease, and delivered it to his master. Sir Kay would willingly have assumed to himself the distinction conferred by the possession of the sword. But when, to confirm the doubters, the sword was replaced in the stone, he was utterly unable to withdraw it, and it would yield a second time to no hand but Arthur's. Thus decisively pointed out by heaven as their king, Arthur was by general consent proclaimed as such, and an early day appointed for his solemn coronation. Immediately after his election to the crown, Arthur found himself opposed by eleven kings and one duke, who with a vast army were actually encamped in the forest of Rockingham. By Merlin's advice, Arthur sent an embassy to Brittany to solicit the aid of King Ban and King Bohort, two of the best knights in the world. They accepted the call and with a powerful army crossed the sea, landing at Portsmouth, where they were received with great rejoicing. The rebel kings were still superior in numbers, but Merlin, by a powerful enchantment, caused all their tents to fall down at once, and in the confusion Arthur with his allies fell upon them and totally routed them. After defeating the rebels, Arthur took the field against the Saxons. As they were too strong for him unaided, he sent an embassy to Armorca, beseeching the assistance of Hoel, who soon after brought over an army to his aid. Later on, Merlin had planned for Arthur a marriage with the daughter of a king from a distant land. By his advice, Arthur paid a visit to the court of that sovereign, attended only by Merlin and by thirty-nine knights whom the magician had selected for that service. On their arrival, they found the king and his peers sitting in council, endeavoring, but with small prospect of success, to devise means of resisting the impending attack of Ryans, king of Ireland, who with fifteen tributary kings and an almost innumerable army had nearly surrounded the city. Merlin, who acted as leader of the band of British knights, announced them as strangers who came to offer the king their services in his wars. But under the express condition that they should be at liberty to conceal their names and quality until they should think proper to divulge them. These terms were thought very strange, but were thankfully accepted, and the strangers, after taking the usual oath to the king, retired to the lodging which Merlin had prepared for them. A few days after this, the enemy, regardless of a truce into which they had entered with King Laudigan, suddenly issued from their camp and made an attempt to surprise the city. Cleodalus, the king's general, assembled the royal forces with all possible despatch. Arthur and his companions also flew to arms, and Merlin appeared at their head, bearing a standard on which was emblazoned a terrific dragon. Merlin advanced to the gate and commanded the porter to open, which the porter refused to do without the king's order. Merlin thereupon took up the gate with all its appurtenances of locks, bars, bolts, etc., and directed his troops to pass through, after which he replaced it in perfect order. He then set spurs to his horse and dashed at the head of his little troop into a body of two thousand pagans, 
the disparity of numbers being so enormous, Merlin cast a spell upon the enemy, so as to prevent their seeing the small number of their assailants, notwithstanding which the British knights were hard-pressed. But the people of the city who saw from the walls this unequal contest were ashamed of leaving the small body of strangers to their fate, so they opened the gate and sallied forth. The numbers were now more nearly equal, and Merlin revoked his spell so that the two armies encountered on fair terms. Where Arthur, Ban, Bohort, and the rest fought, the king's army had the advantage. But in another part of the field, the king himself was surrounded and carried off by the enemy. The sad sight was seen by Guinevere, the fair daughter of the king, who stood on the city wall and looked at the battle. She was in dreadful distress, tore her hair, and swooned away. But Merlin, aware of what passed in every part of the field, suddenly collected his knights, led them out of the battle, intercepted the passage of the party who were carrying away the king, charged them with irresistible impetuosity, cut in pieces or dispersed the whole escort, and rescued the king. In the fight, Arthur encountered a giant, fifteen feet high, and the fair Guinevere, who had already began to feel a strong interest in the handsome young stranger, trembled for the issue of the contest. But Arthur, dealing a dreadful blow on the shoulder of the monster, cut through his neck so that his head hung over on one side, and in this condition his horse carried him about the field to the great horror and dismay of the pagans. Guinevere could not refrain from expressing aloud her wish that the gentle knight who dealt with giants so dexterously were destined to become her husband, and the wish was echoed by her attendants. The enemy soon turned their backs and fled with precipitation, closely pursued by Laudigan and his allies. After the battle, Arthur was disarmed and conducted to the bath by the Princess Guinevere, while his friends were attended by the other ladies of the court. After the bath, the knights were conducted to a magnificent entertainment, at which they were diligently served by the same fair attendants. Laudigan, more and more anxious to know the name and quality of his generous deliverers, and occasionally forming a secret wish that the chief of his guests might be captivated by the charms of his daughter, appeared silent and pensive, and was scarcely roused from his reverie by the banters of his courtiers. Every day contributed to increase the admiration of the whole court for the gallant strangers, and the passion of Guinevere for their chief. And when at last Merlin announced to the king that the object of the visit of the party was to procure a bride for their leader, Laudigan at once presented Guinevere to Arthur, telling him that, whatever might be his rank, his merit was sufficient to entitle him to the possession of the heiress of Carmeline. Arthur accepted the lady with the utmost gratitude, and Merlin then proceeded to satisfy the king of the rank of his son-in-law, upon which Laudigan with all his barons hastened to do homage to their lawful sovereign, the successor of Uther Pendragon. The fair Guinevere was then solemnly betrothed to Arthur, and a magnificent festival was proclaimed, which lasted seven days. At the end of that time, the enemy appearing again with renewed force, it became necessary to resume military operations. <laughs>